Let's open the word of the Lord a moment to, um, actually we're going to go to several verses and I'll just continue from there. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. And um, we're going to talk a couple of minutes about the true person. See, God sees the true person. We many times don't see the true person because we judge in the exterior. But God sees the true person. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, that's one of the Old Testament books, one of the first five books. Pentateuch. Somebody who's here saying how important it is to study the Bible and to study the history, the context of Scripture. And uh, that's one of the first things we study, the Old Testament. We, we study the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. So Deuteronomy 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God, but it doesn't stop there. See, if it stopped there, then you could determine how you want to love Him. Because I can love my car, but I also love my wife. I love my gerbil. Yeah, we, we love everything. Uh, you know, the movie stars, I love you. They love their fans. But there are different levels of love. And in the Greek language, the word love has different manifestations. There's a storgos, which is a non-committed kind of love. There's uh, phileos, which is a brotherly kind of love. There's eros, which is a physical kind of love. And there's agape, which is the highest level of love. Agape is loving a person even though they don't love themselves, even though they, don't even, they might not even deserve it. But God says, love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God. Then it says, with all of your heart. And I, I, I love the fact that he said that because that changes the dynamics. It changes the parameters. When you love somebody with all of your heart, the heart, it's not cardio. It's not this heart here. It's the center of your being. It's, it's all of your will, your emotions, everything that makes you uniquely you. It's the seat of your persona. So he says, love God with everything that you have, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And the soul is where you have your, your will, your emotions, your thinking, um, your filters of life, the way you see life. Love God with all of your soul and with all of your strength. Now, that also changes the parameters because if I love God with all my strength, that means everything I do, the work of my hands, have to manifest the love of God. My journey in life has to manifest the love of God. So when God says that, love the Lord your God with all of that, well, who's asking me that? Man, you're asking me for a lot. Well, God. Because when he loved you, he sent Jesus. So he loved you with all he has. He loved you with the best that he has. So it's not some casual person. It's not like a guy going to a gal, you know, let's have some casual times. You know what I'm talking about, right? They commit to an evening together and then next day, there's no committal there. They each go their way. No, God's not asking for that. He's asking for covenant. He's asking for family. He's asking for a permanence. In the Old Testament, when they would cut covenant, or when two families would covenant with each other, the two families are going to become one, they would actually kill an animal, splay them open, and both of the families would walk through that animal, the center. Because there was a blood covenant there. They would walk through the center. And as they were walking through the center, they would declare blessings and cursings over the family. 
If any pr person would leave that family, curses would come upon them. If any person uh, would, would walk together with that family, they would become one with that family. And then all the benefits of the family, the inheritance of the family, the name of the family belonged to them. The two families, in essence, became one. So that's what happens when we get married. We create covenant. God is a covenant God. That's what he does. So when he tells you something, he actually means it. When he tells you all of mine is yours, he actually means that. When he tells you that my blessings are yours, I'm going to bless you in the, uh, going in, coming out. I'm going to bless you in the city. I'm going to bless you in the country. He actually means that. You see, so I love that about my God. He's serious about covenant. So he tells us, in the same way I love you, I want you to love me. What can you give God that God doesn't have anymore? I mean, rather, that he doesn't have. Isn't God the owner of everything? Huh? Doesn't God own any, everything? Well, there's something we can give God that he doesn't own. It's our wills. Because he made us as beings that can make decisions. See, so that's, our, that, that's ours. He gives that to us. Now we can voluntarily give that to him. And when we voluntarily give that, he receives it. And that blesses him because he's looking for family. He's looking for relationship. So love, the God, love God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your passion. And he receives that. And I'm going to get into that now in a couple of minutes. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and favor. Now I pray, dear Holy Spirit, that you teach us, Lord God. I pray that you think through my mind, speak through my lips. I pray that you heal us today, bless us, take us higher, I pray. Reveal to us your word, your will, and your way, and your presence, my God. We'll be careful to give you all the glory, the honor, and the praise. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen and amen. You may be seated in God's presence. And it's interesting because covenant was always a very challenging thing. In the Old Testament, God said, I'm giving you the land. He told Israel of old, I'm giving you the land. Then, uh, during Joshua's time, they were just ready to get in. And then God reminded them, uh, Joshua, none of these guys are circumcised. Remember the covenant I cut with Abram? Every single one of his sons has to be circumcised. So before they walked into their promised land, every single man who was born in the desert, who had not been circumcised, had to be circumcised. Now, I know it's a little unusual to preach about circumcision in a church, right? But... The Bible says in the New Testament that God circumcises our heart. What is circumcision? It's the removal of a piece of skin that's not really necessary to a man, but can actually be harmful. Because a man, um, you know, of course, we all have to cleanse ourselves. We have to be clean about ourselves, and, and uh, hygiene is very important. But a man uh, carries the seed, right? Seed is vital because seed has to be passed on, and it creates future children, creates future generations. Now, when a man and his wife get together, the man passes on his seed to his wife. She receives the seed. That seed in the womb fertilizes the egg, becomes a child. There's a new future there, right? Okay, here's the problem. If a man is harboring bacteria in that foreskin portion, if he's not clean, as he passes on that future life, he also passes on future uh, genetic destruction. So in the act of creating life, you could actually destroy life. Right? So when Joshua received that instruction from the Lord, he said, you guys are ready to go in there, but now you have to get circumcised. Because See, there was a, a meaning behind it, and I'll share, share with you in a minute. What happened was these guys were about ready to go in, but they had been slaves for over 400 years. 
they had baggage in, you know, in their minds. They had, they had issues. They had a prior thinking. They had filters in them that would preclude them from ruling and reigning. Right? So if you go into your inheritance and you have all your old mess, right now, if I give some of you a million dollars, you blow it faster than, than you know, the average thing. Because you don't know how to handle money. Because you, ne you were never trained to handle money. You're a consumer. You're not an investor, right? So I can't give you stuff. I can't give you blessings. I have to train you how to handle blessings first before I give you the blessings. Right? Well, look, look, about, look at it. Uh, teenagers who suddenly get famous on TV. Amanda Bynes and uh, uh, all these other kids. They get money real quick in their hands. They were never ready for that. They, they, they didn't go through a breaking process. They didn't go through a maturing process. They don't know how to handle it. A guy from Glee, 31 years old, a lot of money in his pocket. What does he do? He kills himself because he wasn't trained. He wasn't disciplined in, in how to handle the blessing. So God was saying, okay, I'm about ready to give you a big blessing, but you first have to get circumcised. So what happened? Wow. Imagine this scenario. Soldiers go up to Joshua. Joshua was a priest. And they had, they had, they had to voluntarily go to Joshua. Okay, Joshua circumcise me now they had to go before almighty god and give themselves voluntarily through a painful process that removed from them something that could be potentially dangerous for their future yeah ouch and then they had to spend three days healing before they got ready to actually go in and war for their new land think about it so now in the, Old, in the New Testament, it says that God circumcises us by His Spirit. The word circumcise, cut away stuff that's unnecessary in your, uh, that comes from your past, but could actually be harmful in your future. So when you come to Christ, you want to give God your whole heart, but you have a problem. You have a past. You were slaves to sin. You were slaves to issues, failures. Uh, people called you names. Um, all you know is your past, Right? So now God, now God starts cutting away. He cuts away at stuff that was natural to your past, but dangerous for your future. I'm getting very few amens. Maybe it's because you're just soaking it all in. Amen. Right? So as God cuts it away, it hurts you because you're used to that stuff. Right? Somebody, for example, that wants to stop smoking. Anybody here ever stop smoking? Right? It's not easy. It's a very difficult process because you're addicted to nicotine. So it's painful. It's a different type of pain, but it's still painful. And on and on. If you want to change your diet. How many of you have ever been here on a diet? Probably everybody, you know. <laughs> Diets are painful. I remember when I was a teenager, we would fast a lot in our church. <laughs> but they didn't train us how to really fast. We just did it, you know. And one day, my, my, my buddy and I, we decided to fast three days. And fast means in the old church that I went to, no food and just water. That's it. No juice, just water. So three teenagers, I mean two teenagers, we went fasting for three days. So I didn't realize how difficult that can be. Now the first day after I say three o'clock, I started feeling it. My stomach, my stomach started saying, hey, come on, it's time to... Well, we didn't give anything. We're serving God. We want to fast. So, so I... I by 6 o'clock, we're already in bed. Uh, 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 uh. Second day we got up, and him and I, like geniuses, we're walking around in the streets. At every restaurant we passed, we would stand in the window and watch people eating. 
We're looking at us. Oh man, that is so good right now. Oh man. Oh, look at that guy. And then some people in the restaurant will go. <laughs> so by the second day in the afternoon, I mean, I was green and blue and my stomach wasn't angry. It was punching me. Boom, 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 boom. By the third day, that is it, man. Horrible. But we knew at the end of the third day, we were going to eat. So what we did is we got some pasteles, pastelitos, and some stuff. We stuffed it in our desk and everything. We had it ready to go, man. Third day, we were, I mean, I, I was salivating on the right side. The left side, I was going, oh, yeah, mm-hmm, my pastelito. I mean, I was, I was so excited. You know, it's like a patty, meat patty. We stuffed them in the desk, and we had them ready to go. We didn't bother even heating them. So... At the end of that, you know, come 6 o'clock, we just get in there. All right. So him and I, we start, nom, 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 nom. Oh, this is so, nom, 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 nom. They never trained us at how to fast. When you fast, you don't eat right away. You take a little bit of broth, a little bit of water, a little hot tea, you know, a mild tea, a chamomile, you know, really mild. And then your stomach once again starts acclimating. Oh, no, we, we had it. I'm glad I was like 15 years old. Because if I was like 50 doing that, I probably would end up in the hospital for months. But let me tell you, we learned the hard way. And our body fought it every step of the way because we were so used to that. So when God starts cutting things out of your life, it hurts you. You go through a process. You see? But circumcision is necessary because as you're entering into your new future, there's some stuff in your past you cannot walk in with anymore. Because when you want to give your whole heart to God, you first have to start looking at what's connected to your heart. What do you have in your heart? The love of this, the love of that, the love of the other. See, and it pulls you away from being able to have a whole heart toward God. So I wanted to share that briefly, a couple of minutes, in the next 10, 15 minutes. Let me get into my digital Bible here. For, um, says in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 29, 17. I know, my God, I know Him. You're the one who tests the heart, and you have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered you all these things. And now with joy, I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. So David was saying that he recognizes that God tests the heart. He tests you to, not because... You either pass or fail, but he wants to know where you're at. You know why? He loves you with all his heart. So your heart is the center of your very being. Now we judge according to our clothing. Anybody here has ever judged according to clothing? We judge according to the way people talk. We judge according to skin color. We judge according to ethnicity. And you know, God doesn't judge that way. He has... It, it, that does not move him. He, it doesn't move him if you have a Gucci bag. It doesn't move him if you walk around with a Mercedes or drive with a Mercedes. Or you have a Rolex watch. You can't go to God. Hey, God, look at this. Yeah, Rolex. He doesn't care. That does not move him. On the contrary, he gets concerned for humans because we get so caught up with that that we think that's what it's all about. And it really isn't. God judges the heart. God tests the heart because he wants to bless you, but sometimes he has to keep you from a blessing because your heart isn't ready for it. And if he releases the blessing to you too quickly, you might get destroyed in the process. Psalms 17, verse 3. 
David the psalmist says, You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and you have found nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. So once again, God tests the heart. Psalms 51, verse 10. Psalms 51, verse 10, for those of you that are writing. David prayed to God. He said, God, create in me a clean heart and renew in me a steadfast spirit. So he asked God, God, cleanse my heart because he realizes he had issues in his heart. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs or uh, Ecclesiastes, it says, the heart is desperately wicked beyond all things. Who can know it? You know what I, I get concerned about many times, even with my own heart? I might not know what I'm dealing with. So I ask God, God, cleanse me, help me. Because there may be issues in my heart that need to be cleansed. And I'm not even aware of it because I'm so used to it. It's so normal to me. So God created me a clean heart. Matthew's, or rather, I'm sorry, Psalms 51, verse 17, same chapter. David said this, The sacrifices of God, or the ones that we could give to God that are acceptable to Him, are a broken spirit. Broken spirit means they're a submissiveness to allow God to work in you and to cut away things that don't belong to your better future. Okay? So a broken spirit, you know, it's like you have a horse that needs to be broken. What do you do when you break a horse? Are you killing him? Are you breaking him in half? No. What you're doing is you're making him docile so that he now could become a horse that you could work with, that you could ride on. An unbroken horse, you can't ride them. If you get on them, they'll, you know, they'll kick you off, right? They'll hurt you. But a broken horse, you could ride on, he'll stay there, and he'll ride you, and then you could, to the right, he'll go to the right, to the left, he'll go to the left. So a broken spirit is not a destroyed spirit there. It is a mindset that is pliable in the presence of God. So the Bible says that's a sacrifice that he accepts. A broken and contrite heart, a humble heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Matthew 15, 19. It says, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. See, so it's the heart that we have to deal with. In all these things, usually the base, racism comes from the heart. Racism doesn't come from color, it comes from the heart. If I think I'm better than you, it has, it's not a black and white thing, it's an all over the world thing. They, I'm, I'm telling you, there's racism in South America, there's racism in Africa, there's racism in Asia, there's racism in Russia, there's racism in America, there's racism in Canada, and it doesn't all look black and white. In our context in, in the United States, we see it more of a black and white thing many times, and that's what gets reported more. But in reality, racism is a heart issue. It's a, I think I'm better than you issue. And that's a heart that needs to be broken. So let me give you a couple of examples through Scripture. David, the Bible says, you know, he had a heart after God. He had a heart after God. I'm going to say it again. He had a heart after God. So he had a heart that was pliable. He had a heart that even though he made great mistakes, because he did. I mean, David made huge mistakes. But yet he had a heart after God. And in... Um, in the scriptures, in First um, Samuel 16, verse 6. When a prophet arrived, Samuel, Samuel was already an old man. Samuel didn't come out of his house anymore. He always stayed in Ramah. But this time, God called him and said, leave your city. I want you to go to anoint the next king. He said, okay, Lord. So he went. So he went to the town. He went to Jesse's house. He says, the Lord said, bring me your seven sons, because one of your sons are going to be king. 
So what does Jesse do? Jesse brings his firstborn son. In their culture, the firstborn gets the inheritance. Plus, uh, uh, his firstborn son called Eliab, this man was a warrior. So, pridefully, father goes, he says, this is Eliab, my firstborn. The prophet looks at him and says, whoa, that guy looks like a king. Tall, strong, you know, warrior. God says in his spirit, says, uh, uh, prophet, no, don't judge that way. I don't look at the outward appearance. I judge the heart. So the prophet was, wow, so bring me your second son. God rejected this one. No, 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 no. Seven sons he brought, he passed by him. All of them, no. Do you have any more sons? God says none of these. So yeah, one over there. In comes a young guy, red-haired, ruddy, smell like sheep. He says, this is the youngest one here. The Lord says, that's the one. I want you to know him because he has my heart. See, God identified him in the midst of warriors, in the midst of an entire community. So don't you think that you're serving God all by yourself and nobody's noticing you. It doesn't make a difference. Even, even the church doesn't re- recognize you. It doesn't make a difference if your job doesn't recognize you. If your supervisor doesn't recognize you. If your family doesn't recognize you. If you have a heart after God, God sees that. Amen. And God is able to reposition you any way He wants to. Amen. Now I say that because later on, when David went, sent by his father to go into the field of battle and to bring bread and cheese, that's all, just bring bread and cheese to your brothers. He brings it to his brothers, Eliab and the other two that were in war, fighting against Goliath. He's listening to Goliath. He's bringing the cheese. He says, Goliath is saying a lot of horrible things. Who does this uncircumcised Philistine think he is? So he started asking questions, David did. What will happen for the guy that defeats this giant? Well, tax-free for life. You'll marry the king's daughter, and on and on. He says, I want to do it. You know who's the first one that criticized him? You can read that in First King, I mean First Samuel chapter 17. Which one? Hmm? The firstborn, Eliab. The one that had been rejected, that saw David being anointed, that knew he was going to be the next king, was the first critic. Isn't that interesting? You have a heart after God, so you want to, you know, do something in the presence of God. You want to serve Him, whatever it is. The first people that will criticize you are the ones that have a bad heart. Or a heart that's not after God. So that's why I'm saying, and yet, Eliab didn't get the position. The one that got the position was the one that had the heart right before God. Now, he had, Eliab had everything else. He was the warrior already. He already had the, the influence. He already had the name. He he already had the position in the army, so to speak, right? But yet when it came, when push came to shove, the one that made the difference is the one that had a right heart before God. Because when Goliath came out and started cursing, who were the ones that ran away? Eliab and the rest of the warriors. They all had fear in their hearts. But the one that didn't have fear in his heart is the one whose heart was full of God and His Word. Can, can, can I get something here? A, a reaction. <laughs> you understand my point? When the Holy Spirit fills your heart, you might be tempted to fear, but you won't give in to the fear. Whereas these guys that didn't have their heart full of Almighty God, when they were tempted to fear, they went with the fear and they ran away. None of these guys were willing to fight Goliath 
For 40 days, he cursed Israel. He cursed them. He cursed everything about Israel. And one young man comes in with the right heart after God. And what does he do? He topples the giant. So the first order is don't go out there and try to conquer. Out externally, first order is conquer your own heart. And give that heart to Almighty God. The second example comes with Gideon. You know, Israel was ransacked. They had sinned. God's presence had been lifted for a moment. And now for 20 years, they're being harassed by the enemy. And suddenly an angel shows up to Gideon's house. Gideon is hiding from the enemy and he's threshing wheat in the basement. And suddenly the angel speaks to Gideon. And this is, this. Uh, let me see, is found in Judges chapter 6. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abizir. Gideon, the son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of the winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites, the enemies. And the angel of the Lord appears to him suddenly and he says to him, you mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Say that to your neighbor, mighty hero. Mighty hero. Now let me ask you a question. Did you take that seriously when they told, when they told you mighty hero? Well, guess what? An angel just shows up to a guy that's hiding and he says, you mighty hero, the Lord is with you. So how did Gideon reply? Did, did he say thank you? No. He says, uh, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us, abandoned us and he hands us all over to the Midianites? Then the Lord turned to him and says, go with the strength that you have. Rescue Israel for the Midianites because I'm sending you. Now you're talking about a guy that for the last 20 years, all he's seen is destruction, despair. He's hiding, you know? And suddenly an angel shows up and starts telling him this. And he goes, but Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clan, my family, is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh. And I am the least of my entire family. He had a very low self-esteem about himself. But yet God is saying to him, mighty man, How do you explain that? Who was right? Was God right? Or was Gideon right? God was right, but Gideon's perspective was off. He did not, he was not in sync with what God saw for him. He, God saw Gideon's heart. But Gideon was off in terms of his perspective. He had dirty glasses on. You know, if you have dirty glasses on, it could be a sunny day, you put them on, you don't see the sun. And that's what was happening with Gideon. His perspective was off. But once his perspective got in sync, he loved God with all of his heart, but he just didn't know that he was worthy to fight for Israel. Man, he went, and let me tell you, he delivered all of Israel. He did a great job. You could read the story yourself. But the point I'm making is, once again, God caught the heart of a man, and even though the man didn't even know it, God knew that there was something extra in him. God knew his heart. I'm the weakest. I don't know. Mighty man. See, God does not call you what you are. He calls you what you will become. He gives you a picture of your prophetic future. We only see our now. God sees our potential tomorrow. Praise God. So if we, we sync with God, if we pray and start uh, allowing God to break our heart, in other words, to make us pliable and start hearing the Lord, we'll realize there's a lot more to us than meets the eye. Why? Because we judge exterior, but God judges the heart. 
So it's, it's time that we now start judging according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. I don't care if you're small, tall, big, small. I don't care what type of hair you have. I don't care what culture you come from. If God's calling you and you respond to that call, God will work through you mightily. Praise God. Because it's not about what you have out here. It's about the heart. A third example is Moses himself. One day he's sitting in his chair Miles and miles of people waiting to be judged by him because he was the man of God. So his father-in-law goes up to him and says, Moses, what you're doing is wrong. So what do you mean? He says, you're the only one judging the people. You're the only one. They're bringing their cases to him and he has to handle all of their cases. There's 2.5, at least 2.5 million people here. He says, yeah, but I, what do you want me to do? They come to me. He said, well, okay, this is what you're going to do and God will be with you. God used Moses' father-in-law and Moses' father-in-law told him, said, listen, seek out righteous faithful men that are here with you and help the, uh, and, and teach them to judge the smaller cases. You handle the big important cases. So that's what Moses did. Moses went into town and according to discernment, according to wisdom, he selected men who actually were righteous, who had the right heart after God. And as soon as he did that, he set them in leadership positions. Some ruled the thousands, some ruled hundreds, some ruled fifties, some ruled tens, right? Each man according to his ability. Wow. Guess what happened? Everything got taken care of. But here's the point I'm making. What was their names? Anybody? Was it Joe, Harry, Larry, Curly, Moe? You don't know their names. The Bible doesn't... It's not important. You know why? God knew them. They were important to God. It was not necessary for them to be uh, famous and fortunate. Wow, great. No, they did their job. They were, they were faithful men. They were honorable men. And God had already recognized them. And they were there all along in front of Moses. And Moses, the great man of God, couldn't see it. But God saw it. And this is what I'm trying to say. I love that about Scripture, that it exposes men that might not even have a name that we might recognize, but their name was famous before God. So you might never become famous, let's say out there in the culture, you know, you might never walk the red carpet, so to speak, although sometimes we do a red carpet thing here, you know, but you won't get the red carpet, but who cares? Do you think that when they're walking the red carpet, God is saying, wow, my great man of God, my great woman of God, whoa, I'm so impressed. God's not impressed with that. We're the ones that get impressed. We're the ones that get starstruck. Some of you, if, if one of these famous guys were to walk around here, some of you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. Really. First time I ever saw that as a teenager, it blew me away. When, when um, should I say that? It'll expose my age. When, you remember when the Beatles came in? I never saw so many screaming young ladies in my life. And for my first thought is, wow, it'd be so great to have a lot of girls screaming like, for, like that for me. <laughs> Right? But the bottom line is, no, that, that was not important. That is all flash. It's all here today and gone tomorrow. Como esta linda? God bless you. Praise God. You see, but God knows you. So tell your neighbor, God knows you, He loves you, and He's anointed you. And I, what I also love about it is that these faithful men, some of them were able to supervise thousands. But others were able to supervise hundreds. Also, others were able to supervise ten. And they were all important before God. The guy who supervised tens were not more important than the guy that supervised thousands. They were all important and they all had their responsibility. And none of them had 
pressure. In other words, I don't have to fulfill what you have to fulfill. You understand? In other words, you look at me. Oh, I want to be a pastor one day. Don't, 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 please, don't want to be a pastor right away. This is, this is not as, as glamorous as it looks. Believe in me, there's a lot of pressure behind the scenes. Be what God is calling you to be. Maybe God's calling you to be a great teacher. And you're going to impact children for the rest of their lives. I still remember some of my teachers. Especially my Sunday school teachers. Praise God. But God might call you to be a housewife, a homemaker. Be the best one you could be. Let me tell you, who was Billy Graham's mom? Who are you to say her job was important? Who's doing the more important job? Billy Graham's mom or Billy Graham? T.D. Jake's mom or T.D. Jake's? Who's doing the more important job? We can debate that, you know. Because if it wasn't for T.D. Jake's mom, T.D. Jake's will never be who T.D. Jake's is. You understand? Or, you know, President Obama. Who's President Obama's family? You, 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 you got to look at who was there to help them in their early stages. Amen. Praise God. So what is your responsibility? That's the point I'm making. You're, impor- you're important. You're vital. So you can't put yourself down. We're thinking, oh, I'm just the weakest in my clan. Uh, excuse me, mighty man, mighty woman. Amen. Say it in your neighbor, mighty man, mighty woman. Amen. Make sure you point to the right one when you say that, all right? Come on. <laughs> and the last one, and I'm, I'm, I'm landing, I'm landing. Uh, look what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And these things that you heard from me, Paul saying to Timothy, Timothy, I trained you, right? Things you heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Wow, I love that. Because, check this out. Paul taught Timothy, right? And Timothy says, now commit to faithful men. What are the names of the faithful men? And I would add women. What's their name? Anybody? It doesn't say. It's not important. It's important to God. Because God then connected Timothy to faithful men. And then faithful men were able to train others. You see my point? Jesus, uh, that's the anointing. Don't worry about it. It's the anointing. (laughs) Jesus taught Paul. Paul in turn taught Timothy. Paul tells Timothy, teach faithful men, faithful men teach others. See my point? So in that cog, in that wheel, there is always somebody that's vital so that others can get it too. And God knows each and every single person. God knows you personally. He designed you specifically. He designed you just the way He wanted you to, or rather the the, the way He wanted to. You're important to Him. He loves you just the way you are. It's time to stop imitating others and be who God called you to be. Be the best you you could be. Uh, have the best ministry in terms of what God called you to be. W- whatever it is, it doesn't make a difference. It's important. We're the ones that create idols. Right now, even in the church, many people worship pastors or worship bishops or worship you know, televangelists, whatever it may be. That's wrong because they're not the great ones. It's their God that's great. One time, Morris Cerullo, he was praying to God, God, make me great. Make me great like Moses. Make me great like Moses. And God says, you want to be like Moses? Moses was a murderer. Yeah, God spoke to him. Moses was a murderer. 
So, oh, okay. Uh, Lord, make me, make me great. Make me great like David, like King David. David was a murderer and he committed adultery. And he went on and on, <laughs> quoting men of God, and on and on, God exposed the men's sin. Finally, he said, oh, God, make me like you, because you're the one that's great. <laughs> Praise God. You know, we, we get to think we're big and bad. We're not. We could be here today and gone tomorrow. Yeah. It's God who is great, who is awesome, who is loving, who is kind. And the Bible says that for us to reflect Jesus more and more. And we're on a journey. So don't, you, don't think you arrived. For those of you that thought you arrived already, yeah, I'm the great man of God. I'm the great woman of God. As I walk, I can walk on water. No, you haven't arrived yet. You're on a journey. And this is the issue. In the church, we'll always have people on a journey. And part of the problem with many Christians who have been in church for a long time, they get to think that they're very, really special, super-duper, califragilistic, espialidocious, holy. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're more holy than anybody else. So uh, out, in comes a person who's just come in, falls in love with Jesus, but they have piercings and tattoos. They don't want to even sit next to the pierced, tattooed man of God. Yeah, and yet, God would rather use the pierced, tattooed man or woman... Then this one that thinks they're all big and bad. Because scriptures even show two guys praying. One guy was a priest or a rabbi or something like that. He was praying, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like others. I fast twice a week. I read the Bible every day. I'm not like that guy next to me. And the other guy, he was a publican and he was a sinner. And all he did in, in his prayer was, oh God, forgive me because I'm a sinner. And he would beat on his chest, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Then Jesus told him, he says, see, who's the one that comes out justified here? He said, that one there, that's forgive me because I'm a sinner. He recognized it. He recognized he needed God to cleanse his heart, to help him in his journey. So God justified that man and lifted him up. And the guy that thought he was all big and bad had no honor before God. My God. So, so in closing, I don't want nobody clapping at this moment. I just said in closing. So in closing, Psalm 62a, trust him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. Because God is a refuge for us. Ephesians 3, 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with the saints, with all the saints, what is the width and length and depth and height. And to know the love of Christ, which passes understanding. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And lastly, Philippians 4, 17. I'm sorry, 4, 7. Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So that's the central figure. In Christ, when we come to Christ, when we ask Christ to come into our hearts, that's the key, because He's the one that cleanses our heart. We can't cleanse our own heart. He cleanses it. He's the one that sets us free. He's the one that delivers us. So I strongly then urge each and every one of you, to inspect your heart and also reflect on your relationship with Almighty God. Not for me, for you. Because what will happen is He will awaken you. He will awaken your purpose. He will show you who you really are. Praise God. Gideon was a nobody until God opened up his understanding. All along, he was a leader. All along, he would be judge over Israel. He would be like, like a president, so to speak. But he didn't know that. Joseph, prisoner. But yet God had slated 
a, a, a seat for him right alongside Pharaoh. But meanwhile, he was in prison. He went from prison to the palace. I want you to reflect a moment. I want you to reflect where you are with Almighty God. And where's your heart? See, you know your heart to a certain degree because you, you're the one that hears your inner communication, your inner conversation. And one of the things I want you to do is I want you to stop gauging yourself uh, by looking at others. I want you to start understanding you're very unique, you're, you're special, you're, you're unique. God created you to be unique. You're nobody's copy. So have you been judging yourself against others? Well, I'm better than this one. I'm not better than this one. No, no, that's irrelevant. You know if you're at your potential. You know if you're on the right journey, on the right path. You know that. Nobody can... See, you can't fool yourself. You can fool others. But you can't fool yourself. We do a good job of fooling others. But this is not about fooling others. It's about opening up your heart to God. Because He loves that. He, a, a heart that's broken before Him. A heart that's pliable before Him. That's what He loves. He says, those sacrifices... Remember the verse I read? Those sacrifices are the acceptable sacrifices before God. Because that's what we have that we could give to Him. What can you give Him? Forget about a dollar bill. He doesn't need a dollar bill. That's not what's going to please Him. What's going to please Him is your heart. Nothing less than your heart. So right now as you're meditating, is your heart given to God? Or do you have only one quarter of your heart to Him? Or are you a part-time heart giver? Some of you... Um, signed off your body parts in case you pass away. I don't think it'll work if you only sign off a quarter of your heart. What do you think? Or a quarter of your liver. Or a quarter of your spleen. Right? It wouldn't make sense? That doesn't make sense, right? We're well, the same way. You can't give a, a God a quarter of your heart. How am I gonna give, I'm going to give my wife a quarter of my faithfulness. You think that'll work? I'm telling you right now, it won't work. My, my wife wants all of my faithfulness. Right? That's covenant. Anything else falls short. So how are we with our heart? 